And I speak in the name of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. The horrifying images of the vicious assault on the Capitol building in Washington DC, which dominated our screens on Wednesday evening, will not easily be forgotten. One of my closest friends in DC texted me at around midnight on Wednesday. She said, it's horrifying. We've been watching the TV for hours, frozen by the images, stunned, hoping that perhaps this insurrection might break the fever. We live in hope. This was an invasion by several thousand people who believed that their emperor was about to be wrongly removed from power. An invasion by people who refused to accept that political change is coming to America next week. An assault by one group of people who could see that they were about to be on the wrong side of that political change and whose fear that the voice of the other would be heard once again drove them to desecrate the building that symbolises America's democratic system. It was an assault that can only be followed by dramatic change. An insurrection that might, in the words of my friend Tricia, break the fever. A piece I read this weekend reflected on whether America was in the throes of a historic reinvention or careening towards civil violence. That is a choice that America will need to make in the coming weeks and months. It's a situation that calls for an evangelion. An evangelion is not twinkly stars at Christmas and a lovely message that Jesus loves you. He does, by the way. The good news that Mark is introducing to us in this evening's passage is a message about something that alters the climate in which people live. It changes the politics and the possibilities transforming the landscape of social life. At the beginning of this year, when we long for political and socionomic change in so many parts of the world, Mark, the herald of earth-shatteringly good news, is our ideal companion. Mark's gospel is fast and punchy, its staccato writing interrupted by vivid apocalyptic imagery presents a breathless, urgent message of political change, a message of subversion, a message that some unknown man from Galilee is going to be the one who will join heaven to earth and bring salvation to the whole world. There is a cinematic quality to Mark's introduction to both John and Jesus. A bit like some Vanity Fair piece about a celeb party, popular memories of John recall little beyond his dress sense and his unusual eating habits, and perhaps that he called someone a brood of vipers. But John's vital role at the beginning of the Gospel is Mark's way of setting up the entire story of uncomfortable good news that he is bringing his audience. Mark's presentation of him is also full of symbolism. John's unforgettable outfit is carefully chosen to mark him as the new Elijah, whose coming soon, some believed, marked the end of times. We learn that John has been in the wilderness, a reminder of Israel's long wandering in the wilderness, in between deliverance from slavery and entry into the promised land. The wilderness is a space between the conquering of sin and death and full redemption. And John baptises in the River Jordan, the threshold between the wilderness and the land of milk and honey. John is not just a radical. He is a witness who stands at the edge of the reign of God and invites people to live into the now and not yet reality of it. That means witnessing to this man Jesus, who is pushed onto the stage without a word of introduction. No prelude, no Christmas story, no explanations. 
simply that he came from Nazareth in Galilee. But that detail is typical of the gospel we will be reading on Sundays this year. Nazareth and Galilee tell us all we need to know about this Evangelion. Jesus' home village of Nazareth was entirely unremarkable. To all intents and purposes, he was a nobody, and that, of course, is the point Mark is making. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He didn't have money or political clout or a huge fan base who would scale a building if he told them to. And if Nazareth was unremarkable, Galilee was notorious. At the northern border of Palestine, it was regarded with contempt and suspicion by most southern Jews. It was surrounded by Hellenistic cities populated heavily by Gentiles, mostly poor and politically cut off from Judea and Samaria. By no means the first place you'd expect to find power. Could this unknown Nazarene be the fulfilment of Isaiah's ancient longing? In Mark uses John, Mark uses John to point people to Jesus, who in the moment of his baptism makes heaven and earth transparent to one another, who through his baptism allows us to hear the voice of God which calls out in love. The heavens will open again later in Mark's Gospel and there will be more talk of tearing. Elijah will feature again as well at the hinge of Mark's story in the Transfiguration. And this same word, torn, is used right at the end of Jesus' life as he gives up his spirit and the temple curtain is torn in two. On that occasion, it is an imperial God who will echo the words God spoke to Jesus at his baptism as he too names Jesus the Son of God. However, between the beginning and end of the Gospel, for most of Mark's account of the good news, this love lives out of sight, like a seed growing secretly. Jesus goes to great lengths to disguise his identity, and his disciples stumble along not quite knowing what's going on. It's as if they miss the opening scene of the Gospel, and spend the rest of it trying to figure out what they missed. Only the demons seem to know who Jesus is. And the truth of Emmanuel is a well-kept secret. God seems silent, as he does so much of the time today. Seeing salvation Mark's way is not for the faint-hearted. Tomorrow Jesus will be driven out into the wilderness to face the demons and the darkness. But this evening we watch this amazing piece of drama and celebrate the tearing open of heaven. It is a reminder that salvation may be hard work. While in the short term, evil and darkness may sometimes win, and the darkness sometimes closes over us, just as it seemed to last Wednesday. Yet, yet the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The light is too good, too beautiful for evil to have the last word. And the light still shone in America last week. Hours before the mob stormed the capital came a shining reminder in Georgia of the light that conquers the darkness. Raphael Warnock became the first African-American to represent Georgia and only the second black senator from the South since Reconstruction. And John Ossoff, Georgia's first Jewish senator. As Warnock reflected on his mother's vote, he wrote, The 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls and picked her youngest son 
to be a United States Senator. Today we witness the beginning all over again. We witness God's Spirit hovering over the waters, coming down to touch earth. Today we hear the voice of God. Today we have the assurance of hope that our world sorely needs. Today we have the promise that the mighty will be brought low and the humble lifted high. Amen.